Our passage this morning is in Matthew chapter 8. And we'll be closing out the chapter this morning. Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 28. That's page 475 in the Blue Bibles. So after the proclamation of the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus did in chapters 5 through 7, and after healing and delivering many people in chapter, uh, chapter 8 leading up to this point, Jesus decided to travel to the far side of the Sea of Galilee. He went from the primarily Jewish side to then the primary, primarily Gentile side. Now this sets up a section in Matthew that really starts to focus in on three miracles that stress the authority of Jesus over everything. Now, the first one we looked at last week, right? When Jesus was crossing the, sto- the boat with his disciples, or crossing the sea with the disciples in the boat, this great storm rose up and was threatening to kill them. And all Jesus had to say was, peace, be still. And the sea and the wind obeyed him. And the emphasis was on Jesus's grand power over the forces of nature. Now, the next two miracles, the next one focuses on Jesus's power over authority and power over even the powers of darkness, over even demons. Jesus has grand authority and they bow down before him. And then the third one, which we'll be getting to next week, Lord willing, is uh, Jesus's power over even bodily ailments and bodily illness. So let's read Matthew chapter eight, starting in verse 28 together. And when he came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerardines, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, All the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. So let's just dig right in. Let's start right there at the beginning. These two demon-possessed men appear. They leave the tombs to meet with Jesus. Now, the tombs, if you think about it, what is the imagery that the tombs represent? It's death. These men who are being tormented by these evil spirits, they're living in a place of death. The tombs were actually the natural home in that time for those who were demon-possessed, those who were lepers, as we've already, we talked about lepers a little bit earlier, but also those who were driven from their homes because they lived in a constant state of uncleanness. If they were around other people, people were worried that they would take that on them, themselves as well, the disease or the, the demon possession. So these, uh, these people who were demon-possessed or lepers, they had to go and live outside of society. And often the tombs were actually these caves that the wealthy utilized to bury their dead. But at the front of the cave, there was some protection from the elements. And so that's why they lived in the caves. That's where they could find shelter. 
So they came out to meet Jesus. And one of the things that Matthew points out is their fierce violence. Nobody could pass by that way because these men were very violent because of the demons who were tormenting them. And Mark really points out in his gospels, because this story is in Mark as well, but Mark points out in his uh, gospel about demons that they torment their hosts. The nature of demons is to torment those whom they interact with. And so it's likely that the demons viewed this road as their territory and they would terrorize anyone who tried to pass by. So they come out and they confront Jesus and they say, what have you to do with us? Now said in another way, you could say, we've got nothing in common. Why are you here? What do you want with us, Jesus? But here they say something really interesting. Out of their mouths comes the title, a title for Jesus, a recognition of who he is. What do you want with us, O son of God? The demons recognized his status before any humans did. That's because they've known him. And honestly, throughout the gospel, some of the best Christology, best understanding of who Jesus is, comes out of the mouths of diabolical spirits. We see their knowledge of who Jesus is. They know his absolute lordship as the son of God. And they recognize his authority over them. They already know that when Jesus has come here, the battle is lost because what do they say next? Have you come here to torment us before the appointed time? The demons are not surprised that the Son of God has come to them. They are surprised at his timing, though. They're not all-knowing, but they have been told, there's going to come a day when my son is going to destroy you. They know that that day is coming. They're not shocked that Jesus came. They're shocked that he came when he did because the time that God said that it was going to happen hasn't happened yet. They apparently thought, like the Jews, that the appearance of the Messiah meant that he is immediately initiating the final battle against all evil. But that wasn't the truth. The first appearance of the Messiah was not as the conquering king, but it was as the humble suffering servant that was spoken about in Isaiah. But as the demons well know, there is a time that is coming when Jesus will come back as a conquering king and he will destroy them forever. So then they request, if you do cast us out, at least let us go to the pigs. And in Matthew we need to understand that traditionally, the home of demons, what we see in the scriptures, we see in Matthew 12, 43, it said demons dwell in the desert areas. It says in Luke 8, 31, that they dwell in the abyss. Or in 2 Peter 2, it says that the demons dwell in dungeons. These are their traditional homes. They don't want to be cast back to those. So they say, Jesus, if you're going to cast this out, at least let us go to the pigs. The demons plead to be allowed to enter the herd of pigs and make their home there. And the unclean pigs, because pigs were very unclean in Jewish culture, the unclean pigs are a fitting home for what are often described as unclean spirits. And it highlights the true nature of these demons. Now the pigs, the presence of a pig farm tells us this is a Gentile region. The Jews do not, even to this day, eat pork. 
They don't harvest pigs. They don't raise them. They don't uh, shepherd them because they're unclean. They've been called unclean since the beginning of the law. So there was no bacon. There is none of those things going on for them at this point. And so the presence of the pig farm tells us that Jesus is indeed in a Gentile region. Now, does Jesus ministering to the Gentiles contradict the mission that he states multiple times that his mission is to the Jews first? Does it contradict that, that he is going to the Gentiles and ministering to them? No, no, it doesn't. It continues this great theme in Matthew that we saw from the very beginning in the genealogy and we'll see all the way at the end when he gives his final commission to his disciples that Jesus was never only coming for the Jews and that even though they were his primary focus during his earthly ministry, Jesus is teaching his disciples through his actions by going to the Gentiles and ministering to them that they will be sent out alone. He is preparing them for that time. He is training them to be able to go out to the Gentiles themselves. The mission is for all peoples so that all who will believe can be invited into the family of Abraham. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 9, verse 6, Not all who are physically descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham just because there is offspring. And in that section of Romans, Paul continues to say that the children of Abraham are those of faith. It is because of Abraham's faith that he was chosen by God, not because of his his physical appearance, not because of those he would physically produce. And so the mission has always been for all the world. It's never been just for the Jews. Though, um, as as Paul also says in Romans, we should honor the Jews because to them we're given the oracles of God. We got the Old Testament because of them. But it is those who believe who are part of the family of Christ. And that's clear even in the Old Testament, in the prophets. We don't have time to get into that right now. But then Jesus, he casts out the demons and he lets them enter the pigs. And with a single word, Jesus shows his authority over the demons. He says, go, and they leave. This is a stark contrast to the exorcists throughout all of history and even in our day today. Those who try to cast out demons, witch doctors, uh, even uh, pagans who are here in America as well, even Catholics and even those who would be uh, more in the charismatic thread of Protestant, Protestant Christianity, evangelical Christianity. All throughout history, this is a stark contrast to them. In exorcism, because for all of them, they use incantations. They pray over the certain thing. They pray the certain words. They're trying to fight, figure out the demon's name. They're trying to do all of these things. And we never see that with Jesus. We see his authority is 100% ultimate. And with one word, he can drive the demons out. And we, see, we saw that in the verses we've looked at over the past few weeks as well. But Uh, For all other exorcists, they use incantations, they use rituals, they use relics. I've heard of uh, even Catholics using the bones of a certain saint and trying because the saints, certain saints have certain uh, rivals that are demons and those saints can help drive out those demons. All of these things are in stark contrast to how Jesus removed the demons and it was simply through his authority. The pigs then, tormented by the demons, stampede over a cliff and drown. Now the men tending the pigs, they run to the city to tell the city what has happened. 
And in Mark 5, in Mark's account of this, in Mark 5, we're told that the delivered man wanted to follow Jesus. But Jesus said, no, you're not going to follow me into this. The way that you are going to follow me right now is to go back to your people and tell them what has happened. He was the first missionary to the Gentiles, to those who were not the Jews. He was sent to tell them of Christ. But in Matthew, it ends with the whole city coming out and begging Jesus to leave. They are afraid of him, even though he gave freedom and life to these two men. The threat of Jesus's authority, not just over the demons, if he has authority over the demons, he has authority over them as well. The threat of Jesus' authority and the changes implied with it caused the city to reject Jesus. Would the Jews, this is a question that's going to fill much of the rest of Matthew now, would the Jews, to whom God gave his word of life, do the same thing? Would they too reject him and his authority? So a couple of things that I really just want to point out in this text. Number one, we have to understand that Jesus is the son of God. One of the reasons I went into Revelation is because in Revelation, that is when we get this opened up view, the veil of who Jesus was when he was on earth, the the veil of the flesh is pulled away. And we see this grand and magnificent king who is the lamb who's standing and is the one who is worthy to, uh, to open the scrolls. And he's standing even though he looks like he was slain. The book of Revelation shows us Jesus as he truly is in all of his majesty. To where four terrifying creatures, they talk about each one has the head of a different animal and they're covered with eyes and they have six wings. And these terrifying creatures, the ones that if they were to appear right here, John fell down on his face before them as if dead. The apostle John. We would, probably either, we would probably do the same thing. And over and over throughout the Bible, what we see is even godly men, when they are confronted by angels, they either fall down, like pass out in fear, or they bow down before them and worship them. And you see John do the same thing in the book of Revelation where he falls before an angel and bows down. And the angel's like, get up! I'm not worthy of this. But his human inclination was to see how glorious these angels were and to worship them. And what are these angels doing around the throne of God and around the Lamb? If you read the book of Revelation, you will see that over and over and over again, all they can say is, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Heaven and earth is filled with his glory. These creatures that we would bow down and worship, if we're being honest, or pass out in fear because of the terrifying glory of them, they're doing the same thing to God, to Jesus. And as Jesus does these things on earth, you start to notice when you have this right understanding of Jesus is fully God and what that means. All of a sudden, Jesus' humility to come to earth in the flesh, to uh, live as a human being lives, to be born as a human being is born. This unending, ultimate creator, the word of life, 
when you recognize that, you realize how humbling that is to me that he would humble himself that much to come to earth. Jesus is glorious and the demons recognize it better than we do because they've seen it. So Jesus is the son of God and he has authority over everything, including the demons. And that makes, he is glorious and powerful. And the great, the incredible thing that happens at the end of this book, at the end of Matthew, Matthew chapter 28, at the very beginning of the great commission, what does Jesus say? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, you go and do all these things. You go and make disciples. You go baptize them, teaching them all the things that I commanded you. Jesus is putting his authority behind his people. With the same authority that Jesus has over the demons, he is saying, you're my representative. Now go, you have my authority backing you. We have that same power that is backing us. That same authority that Jesus had as the son of God. When we represent him rightly, the dark things of the world should be coming undone. And we should recognize the tormenting, the dangerous and the deceptive nature of demons. We should recognize all of that. But we should not respond in fear to it. Rather, we should recognize that Jesus has authority over them as well and he has given that to us. Satan and his demons are the ones who are behind the great ills of the world. As this war is raging, as... as um, these great injustices are being perpetrated. As all of these things are going, this is the work of diabolical forces. Now, granted, humans have, in our, in our sinful ways, we also have the ability to do these things. It's not always, oh, the devil made me do it when we sin against God. Sometimes it's just because you want to sin against God. But the dark, evil things of the world are all being perpetrated and pushed forward further by Satan and his demons, by leading people astray, by lying to them that we would make ourselves a better God than God himself or that other gods are worth following. They are the ones who push for torment on this earth. They are the ones who push for violence and they are the ones who seek our destruction. In C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters, it's a wonderful book that's a, uh, it looks at the problems that we face in temptation. It's all fictional, and it's, uh, he looked at it from what would it look like if a senior demon was writing to a junior demon and giving him tips on how to tempt people away. In C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters, the senior demon Screwtape tells his nephew, Wormwood, that if he just gets his human to think that he's not there, then Wormwood can control everything the person does. And that's the case with too many Christians. We operate what, under what could be called a pragmatic atheism. That we intellectually say, oh yeah, Satan's in the Bible. We believe he's real and the demons are real. But then we act as if he doesn't exist. Brothers and sisters, there are demonic forces that are at work. And we have to recognize that. So often we can uh, lean so far into the psychology. Now granted, there are real mental illnesses that are not demonic. And sometimes the same way that you need a doctor for your body, sometimes you need a doctor for your mind. But there are also times when we talk about uh, 
uh, when psychology talks about interacting with your demons, your inner demons, and making peace with them. Now, there are times when that's, that's just unhelpful language, but there are times when people really are interacting with something dark and diabolical. And while I think with Halloween we should not be afraid and we should not uh, pull away from the world, that doesn't mean that we should just fully engage with everything they do. There is the rise of paganism in our country, and we, it, it's, it should be getting more and more obvious even in our uh, more sheltered region that we're in. There's a rise of paganism going on. And what is going on in paganism is that people are engaging with spiritual forces. They don't realize it, but they are. That there is the rise of the acceptance of using tarot cards. The rise of the acceptance of uh, the horoscope and those things as well. And we need to, as we see that in our friends, call them out of that darkness. And we need to be prepared to do it, not in a way that's in fear, but in a way that's in love, saying, I don't want to see you come under the oppression of these dark forces. Because they're there. And they're real. Brothers and sisters, it is very real. Spiritual warfare is very real. And our best, our best weapon is prayer. We shouldn't be afraid. We should know that the Holy Spirit is within us. But we should step into it unafraid, knowing that we have the backing and the authority of Christ. So in that then, it's important that we recognize whether we are truly Christians or not. Because it is Christians who have the Holy Spirit within them and the authority of Christ. It is not simply those who go to church who has that. So it's important to uh, be introspective enough to actually address that. And to be honest with yourself about those things. As Ephesians 6 states, though, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against demonic forces. Now, what does this mean for us? This means that when great wars rise up, we can have faith that Christ is Lord of all, that he knows and cares for his people. It means that when great threats rise up against the people of God, we can consider it all joy when we are faced with trials of many kinds, just like James 1 says, because trials... The testing of our faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So when trials come up, we don't need to fear. In fact, James says to consider it joy when we're faced with trials because it matures us, it forces us to look at our life to actually consider, are we trusting Christ above all? And it means that we can, even in great fear, seek to welcome in those whom Christ has bought with his blood. We can pray even for our enemies and those who seek to persecute us, just like Jesus told us. A second big point that I want you to recognize, Jesus is the son of God. The second one is Jesus is returning. The demons knew it. They knew that a time was coming when they would be tormented and tossed into the the flames of uh, uh, the lake of fire. The great promise of revelation, regardless of your interpretation of the end times, now some people might care more about that than others, is that Jesus will return as the conquering king and all injustice and evil torment will be ended. The promise is to cast out our three great enemies, sin, Satan, and death. They will be cast into the lake of fire and destroyed for all eternity. The promise is that people from every tribe, 
language and nation will stand with us at the throne of God, worshiping him forever. And that includes those who will believe on the Lord from Israel, from America, and includes even those who would believe on the Lord from Gaza. The promise is that God will be present among us. He will be walking among us, wiping away every tear from our eye. This is in the book of Revelation that God himself will do this for us at the end of the age when he returns. And he will eliminate all the sorrowful things of this life. I believe it was uh, Tolkien in his great work, Lord of the Rings. That one of the characters, when looking forward to the end, when looking forward to this time that is coming, he says, all the sad things will be made untrue. And that's what we're looking for. We see Christ's great power and we long for it. Now, quickly, I want to share with you a bit of my life. And honestly, a time when I was probably more afraid in a physical and spiritual sense than I have ever been. In October of 2017, with very little money and with very little experience, Alicia and I moved to Houston for the purpose of living among and serving Muslims. Now, even in that first week, I, we almost ran out of money. We had food in the pantry, but we were down to about 60 bucks to our name because of the, uh, it was the first time we had had an apartment and those things as well. And just all those expenses were piling up and we thought we had more support around us than we did. Um, but it came to the point where like, okay, we'll make it till my paycheck at the end of the week. But it was getting scary in that point. But what was even scarier than that, that first night of being in that apartment, that I was surrounded by Muslims. This is an apartment complex with probably about 400, uh, 400 apartments. And we drastically changed their demographic by moving in. And this, in this apartment complex in Houston, this is where they resettle a lot of Muslim refugees from Middle Eastern and uh, Near Eastern countries. And there's a great fear because I hadn't, I hadn't interacted with them before. Guys, I spent 17 of the first 19 years of my life within an hour of here. It's not that different. And so when I went there, I was terrified. I didn't sleep well that night. I popped awake at every little thing. I'm looking at our sliding door. And then as the days went by, we saw just these lines of Muslim men in their full traditional garb walking past our door because our apartment complex was connected to a mosque. And it was terrifying. But can I tell you something? As I engaged with them, as I prayed for them, as I sought their good, I learned that many of them were brave men and women who served with the armed forces of the United States. They sacrificed as Muslims, not as Christians or anything, they were willing to sacrifice the potential of their lives to stand against the evils of the Taliban for those who were from Afghanistan. They served as translators, knowing that their families' lives would be forfeit if the Taliban took control again. And so they came as refugees to the United States when those things were happening. And I also learned that they are the most hospitable people I've ever met in my life. I can't tell you how many times I was fed by a Muslim woman. That when my wife would go to visit, huge dishes of food were sent back with her, knowing that it was just me over there as well. And at one point we moved, 
we wanted to move to more of the interior of the apartment complex. So about six months in, we moved into there. And one of the first things that happened, our door was open. We're carrying things in. And this little Afghani boy comes over carrying an air pot that's full of green tea and then comes over with a big tray of cookies. He was sent over by his mother from across the street who saw that we were moving in. Our war is not against flesh and blood. Our war is not even against Muslims, but it is against the demonic forces, the lies that are in Islam. And the the things that the people and the things that would push them to commit atrocities. So brothers and sisters, may we recognize that. May we remember that. If you don't get to experience it for yourself, please learn from my experiences. That not all Muslims are violent. And that even though you might hear people say that it's inherent in the religion and quote part of the Quran, people can do that with the Bible too, guys. Most of the, all of the Muslims I have ever met have been nothing. They've given me clothes out of their own closet. I've never been in a culture like that. And these are some people who I pray for and I care for very dearly. So may we be cautious about the way that we speak about other people. May we recognize that God has saved worse than then. That the Apostle Paul started off as someone who was trying to throw the early Christians into prison and to destroy Christianity. And that it was by meeting the risen Christ on the road that Paul was converted. And he was blinded. And then Jesus went to one of the Christians in a dream and told him, you're going to go talk to that guy who wants to throw you in jail. He's like, oh, come on, God, I can't do that. He's like, no, you're going to do it. And he went and the scales were removed from Paul's eyes. And he became the great Gentile missionary. He went out to the Gentiles. He was the one that's, he's a third of the New Testament, his writings. If God can save Paul, God can save Muslims. If God can save me, God can save Muslims. And let us not be, there, there, there's some really good things that come from being in a small, small community. There's some really, really good things and we should hold to those. But we can get really insulated and not recognize that there are things outside of us. So may we recognize outsiders who don't look like us, who don't speak like us, let's actually seek to invite them in rather than avoiding them or shutting them out. Let's seek ways to proclaim to them the glories of Christ because he is worth it. He is, uh, the gospel should make us uncomfortable, honestly. The gospel should change our lives, that Jesus is Lord of all. That's going to make us uncomfortable. It's going to change things about the ways we live and the ways we go about our business. And if the, the implications of the gospel, the application of the gospel is always pointed outward at other people in the ways that they need to change, then something is wrong. The gospel is for Christians too. May we love that. May we appreciate that. May we recognize that in our sin, we too were rebellious against God. And even still today and this week, we are rebelling against God in certain ways. We're choosing our sin over him and that Christ even still died for us. He offered his life as a ransom for many. 
Let's not take that in vain. Because if Paul wouldn't have been willing to go out to the Gentiles, if Jesus wouldn't have gone to the Gentiles and wouldn't have sent his, his disciples to the Gentiles, where would we be? We'd probably be lost, most of us, in Celtic paganism. Or Gaelic paganism. Most of us are from generally that region. We'd be lost. Let's not let that great legacy end with us. May we love others and recognize their need to be saved just as much as we needed it. And may our love for Christ drive us outward and recognizing that he is the son of God and he is glorious and he deserves the praise in all of the nations and all, all over this hilltop he deserves the praise, but all over Steubenville, all over Ohio, all over uh, our tri-state area right here, all over the nation and all over the world, Christ deserves all of the glory and praise. Let that drive us outward, not inward. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you have blessed us with knowing uh, what, you, what, what, what glorifies you. God, so many are uh, with their gods. They're like, well, maybe if this will please you, maybe this will. But God, you haven't said that. You haven't left us in the dark. You have told us the things that please you. God, thank you for that. Thank you for giving us clarity. God, may we respond to that in love for you, for Christ and what he has done. And may the Holy Spirit propel us outward. May we come together on the Lord's day and glorify uh, your name. But God, let this not be the end of it. May we go out and love our neighbors who do not look like us. You're so good. You're so gracious. God, help us to see ways that we can bring you glory. And Lord, may it never be said of us, like it was said of Israel at times in the Old Testament, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. God, may it never be. May your name be praised because of us. Thank you, Father. You are so good. You're so gracious. Help us to confront our fears Confront our comforts where they need to be confronted, God. And may we honor and glorify you above all else. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.